Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, the politics podcast that rages against the dying of the right, possibly. I'm Andrew Harrison. This week, can we make it through an entire podcast talking about Partygate and the Privileges Committee without mentioning the Mail's new mystery correspondent? Plus, stop the votes. Suella Bravman hands over yet more discretion about legal process to the police. How do we get here and why won't Labour do more about it? And anybody want anything from the chippy? Private school heads have described Shadow Education Secretary and friend of the podcast, Bridget Phillipson, as chippy. We get into the whole ugly world of accusing people of having entirely justified resentments. OK, let's speak the panel. Rachel Cunliffe is Senior Associate Editor at The New Statesman. Hi, Rachel. Hello. So the big story of the weekend, obviously, was the Mirrors Partygate scoop, a, uh, a party for once that didn't feature the guy we're not talking about this week. It was pretty egregious and pretty kind of annoying with a terrible jumper as well. Do you think it will move the dial of opinion, though? Do you think people have made their minds up about this? I mean, I think watching that video, you almost feel sorry for the people at that party. I wouldn't want to be any of the people in that video <laughs> right now. I have a tiny, tiny bit of sympathy for them. Well, they're dancing at one point to Fairy Tale of New York, clearly very, very drunkenly. Um, and the lights are really bright and the whole thing has no character or vibe whatsoever, none of which is what you asked, uh, which yeah. is, will it move public opinion? Uh, I think, yes, the video is bad, but we already had the photo of this party. This is um, a party for the campaign of Sean Bailey, who was the Tory candidate to be uh, mayor of London and obviously lost really badly. Um, but we had the the picture of, of that with all the people posing and the... Plates of really sad looking food. So it's not an event that we didn't know about. And even if people have sort of priced it in, I think a reminder of just how bleak that time was juxtaposed with that party, it's not a great look. Well, particularly if you've told the entire country not to mingle with each other and then mm. you call your party Jingle and Mingle. Which is really sad anyway, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's really, well, I mean, I've got some friends who do it at Christmas, Mingle and Jingle, but you do your mingling first, and then you jingle it, but you don't do your mingling when there's a plague. <laughs> on the go. It's just kind of it's it's kind of a bad look. Um Tom Peck is the independent sketch writer who, like us, has been struggling to keep his work up to date over the past couple of weeks. Hiya, Tom. <laughs> Hiya. So we have one thing connected with that guy that we can talk about. The vote on the Privileged Committee uh, report. What is the latest at uh five twelve PM? Is Sunak bottling it and not turning up? Uh, well, I believe so. I mean, my understanding is that it's not going to be pushed to a vote because too many Conservatives can't bring themselves to do anything to upset a man who's already left Parliament and doesn't give a shit about any of them. Like, they can't mm. face the truth, they can't face reality. And even after Johnson himself, has at, le at least internally, accepted it. And I mean, it's a funny thing, isn't it, the phrase like Sunak bottling it? I mean, I am not the world's biggest Sunak fan, but you could make a very plausible case that he has largely behind closed doors, done more than anyone else alive to rid us of he who we shall try not to name. Yes. But he's just very, very, very wrong if he thinks that absolutely anyone is going to thank him for it. Yeah, I mean, it does. It, there is that kind of sort of boss move of, oh, someone who left Parliament? I don't really know who that guy is. I, the Don Draper, I don't even think about you move. At least it does give him that element of uh, elevation. I mean, it, it's sort of a bit like Cameron and and the 2016 referendum in a way. I mean, he just thought, because I'm going to win, the most important thing is that I don't cause a row in the Tory party. And he obviously got that completely wrong. And I think Sunak is more bothered about having a row between his MPs than he is about publicly doing the right thing and publicly stating what he probably feels. And it may well be that it comes back to bite him. 
What has been your favourite vote or abstain story so far? I think I think mine is Bill Cash saying he's going to vote against the report <laughs> for the sake of Parliament, presumably the right of Parliament to be lied to. <laughs> I mean, Brendan Clark Smith steals the show as always because he, he's just he's always more stupid than you think he's going to be, and, and he he always comes up with something more stupid than even someone trying to satirise the stupid would manage on their own. I mean, he's tweeted a picture of himself on a train today, arriving at work at two o'clock, of course. And going on about how he's more bothered about watching the cricket all day. And he thinks he's a genius for having his little kangaroo tie on, which if you're tweeting about the cricket and taking a picture of yourself wearing a kangaroo tie, I think he might actually have the Australian cricket team tie on, which if you're saying I don't care about Parliament whatsoever, I'd rather just watch England win the Ashes. Well, it's a poor choice of tie, isn't it? Kangaroo Court, is that what he's going for? Oh, Kangaroo Court. Yes. Yeah, Kangaroo Court. is a, It's a really clever visual mm. metaphor for what he thinks of the proceedings. But it just looks like he supports Australia it just in looks the like ashes. Support, yeah. It's a great look for a Tory MP. It, it certainly isn't. Um, Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch and author of How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. So, serious desk for a okay. second. Yeah. Serious desk. Uh, last week, you were writing about how just a few small villages could be the key to Ukraine's advance into their into their own territory. And you've also been talking about the Russian mill bloggers, Russian nationalists who are writing critically about their own country's performance uh, to pressure the Kremlin to invest more in the, in the war effort. Uh, what's your take on how rattled Russia might be as the counteroffensive ramps up? Yeah, it's a very hard one to read because, it, as everyone has said, this counteroffensive is not going to happen overnight. And yes, Ukrainians have made progress, but they've obviously suffered some losses as well. And um, the, the Russians uh, publicly are claiming that it's all going swimmingly. But you do have these mill bloggers. They're, they're, they're an odd phenomenon of this war. Um, there's a lot of them. And basically, most of the time, they're saying it's going worse than Russia Russia wants you to think. But they're doing that from this perspective of being of sort of ultra-nationalist Russians. Right. So they're sort of like a fifth column, but in the other direction. Well, yeah. So indeed, if you were if you were kind of prone to conspiracies, you might think that all the mill bloggers are actually in the pay of the Ukrainians, but they definitely aren't. One of them is the guy who shot down the Malaysian airliner all those years back in 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 the Donbass. So so they're 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 an odd bunch of guys, but they they're often a good indicator of where Ukraine's latest advance has got to. Before we get into the meat of the show, a couple of important messages for you, our beloved listeners. Firstly, don't miss our fabulous new podcast, Paper Cuts, the modern newspaper review for today's busy on-the-go listener. There's a taster of the latest edition in your feed right now if you're a subscriber. You can hear Miranda Sawyer and guests wading into the newsprint tornado every Monday, Wednesday and Friday, round about lunchtime. Search Paper Cuts on your favourite podcast app now or follow the link in the show notes. And secondly, the next Podcasters Question Time is coming on Zoom for Patreon backers. This time, Dorian's in the chair. It's on Thursday, the 29th of June, and he'll be answering questions on everything from Origin Story and Ogwen to, possibly, George Orwell, his life in rock, and which Brexiters most closely resemble which Marvel villains. Andrew Bridgen, the toad, I'm saying. Search Patreon Oh God What Now to sign up as a supporter. As little as £3 a month gets you VIP access to the House of Podmasters. The other day, Marie Leconte, who sadly can't be with us today, tweeted that the only solution to endless news about the last Prime Minister but one is to place a witch's curse on his name so nobody's allowed to speak aloud again. 
So lest we all be turned into frogs, we're going to do our best to do that for the entire episode. Instead of him, much more importantly, the COVID inquiry. It began hearing evidence last week and it won't conclude until 2026, by which time the government that called it and the people who might be criticised will most likely be long gone. It's already controversial, with The Telegraph and The Sun both claiming that Baroness Hallett's inquiry has already reached partisan conclusions and bereaved families are wanting justice. What are we learning from it? What can we expect and what will it all mean? Rachel Cunliffe, this is the public health disaster of our times. And on the first day of the inquiry, Hugo Keith, who's counsel to the inquiry, said that planning for a no-deal Brexit had crowded out government efforts to prepare for the pandemic. Um, how much more do we know than uh, than what we kind of all suspected in the first place, that Brexit had caused a problem? Well, I think we did all know that the government at that time had other things on its mind. Uh, part of that being Brexit. Obviously, there was the election in the, the end of 2019. And there was a sort of the celebration that now we could get on with the, the important job of, of Brexit. The other thing that was going on uh, that you might remember, Dominic Cummings has been d- tweeting and writing and d- giving unhelpful select committee hearings for oh, years now, was there was a sort of mass restructuring of government happening at the time as well and some real big battles over personnel. There was Sajid Javid, who uh, was the Chancellor, uh, deciding to quit because he couldn't have the spads that he wanted and and Dominic Cummings kind of cementing his grip on the power structures of the civil service and Downing Street while trying to plan for a no-deal Brexit, while trying to kind of take control of the message. The other thing that was happening at, at around the time of the pandemic is there were absolutely catastrophic floods. Uh, and so there was just, there was a lot going on. And I think Dominic Cummings has said that uh, at one crucial point, the, the Prime Minister at the time, who we're not going to mention, his fiance was upset that someone had run a negative story about their dog and the fact that they, <laughs> they, they might be getting rid of the dog and that, and that she was um, insistent that they sort of deal with that. All of which gives an impression of people not taking the health situation seriously. I think, though, if we look at what the inquiry is going to look at in the long term, and it is the long term, it's going to be a multi-year inquiry, um, those early months obviously are really important, but I think more important is the state that Britain and Britain's capacity to cope with the pandemic was in going into it so not what plans did we have in advance that is probably more important than were they distracted by Mm. a no deal brexit even though the answer is they obviously were Mm. we can get into that in a minute but um, the the sort of instant politicization of the of the inquiry before it's even properly begun and the sun saying the inquiry will turn into a free for all for cynical left-wing remainers to attack tories and their policies well i i am a cynical remainer uh but i mean i would like to see the inquiry do its work and come to a, a truthful conclusion. Um, has it been politicised already? Yes. Yes, of course it has. Mm. The argument goes, any criticism of the government of at that time is a criticism of Brexit because what they were doing was Brexit preparations and the country voted for Brexit. It was the will of the people. Therefore, any criticism of the government is an attack on democracy or an attack on the will of the people. So if you think COVID went badly, you hate the British people. That's basically what the, what the argument seems to be, which I think is really damaging because we've already, already, it's barely started, kind of lost sight of what the point of this inquiry is meant to be, which is to learn some lessons so that next time we handle it better. And the other thing that is sadly inevitable is that 
again, the scope of the inquiry has become a battle between the last Prime Minister but one. This is going to be really, really tiresome to keep mm-hmm. going. We're going to end up on second mentions on Twitter, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> the tousle heard criminal, you know. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just going to say Boris Johnson no. is fat. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> with, he's here tonight. <laughs> with, with Rishi Sunak because the row over the WhatsApp messages and what whether they can hand them over or not and the government now taking its own inquiry to judicial review about what information they need or not need. Like, none of that is helpful if what you want to do is, again, learn some lessons and stop hundreds of thousands of people dying next time. There's also this weird dynamic where you have, you're not allowed to criticise government in the context of Brexit, but you are supposed to criticise lockdowns because they're against yes. um, our natural freedom to be humans or something. It's, uh, it, yeah, it's it's a it's a massively complicated sort of like you and non-you thing, isn't mm. it, about what's, what, what's permitted and what isn't. Tom, um, David Cameron became the first politician to be sworn into the inquiry today. He admitted his government had made a mistake by focusing on a flu pandemic and not other possible viruses. He put he wouldn't accept that austerity was to blame for hollowing out the NHS. Um, how are the, uh, I know it's early days, but uh, how are the Cameron Osborne years coming out of this so far? Um, well, what, what, he, what he said was that he had no choice but to get control of the public finances. I mean, we've all heard this stuff before. He said that he ring-fenced, he ring-fenced NHS budgets while he did so, which is debatable. He said if he hadn't got control of the public finances, then look what happened in Spain and in Greece, where a lack of austerity ultimately led to greater austerity and to greater cuts. I mean, it's quite a cowardly comparison to always look at the worst possible example, but it's a trick that politicians often use. But Cameron and Osborne and their advisors, they both, and they have all, this is consistent and it's gone on for a long time, they both feel like the generosity of the COVID years, the billions that were borrowed, furlough, eat out to help out, dubious though that was, were all made possible by the tough decisions that they made. And there is some truth to that, but alternative explanations are nonetheless available. To To be persuaded by that, you have to accept that there weren't better ways to rescue the economy, which they did partially rescue, than the ones that they chose. And that is highly debatable. Cameron got something like two hours in the seats. Uh, this is going to be an inquiry that runs for another three years. It seems rather superficial. Um, I mean, two hours is a fair while for someone who had extremely limited involvement. I mean, I don't recall... Well, on the preparation John... he didn't. He was kind of the, the, the state of the NHS when we went into the into the pandemic was largely a result of Cameron and Osborne's uh, and Andrew Lansley's um, doings. Yes, but I feel like by the end of the inquiry, um, we will have moved on a very long way from whether or not the NHS and, and public services should have been more ready hmm. for COVID-19. I feel like that won't be the crucial question in terms of the outcomes and the number of people that died. I may be wrong. But I, I don't think it's going to be superficial. I mean, if anything, I feel like that it's going to be very detailed. It's going to last for a long time. And arguably, I feel like the length of time that's going to be spent on it is itself somewhat farcical. If the whole point of it is for lessons to be learned and we are continually warned that there could be another pandemic any day now, then arguably they should be rattling through it a bit quicker shouldn't they and certainly shouldn't have spent quite so long arguing about the terms of the but about the scope of its inquiry I and mean, i know that everyone always says that sweden's has already done maybe that's not the right idea either but if they want it to be useful it needs to be done quicker yeah i would i would second that and it's due to report a bit not although not fully in 2027 i think the the experts that i've spoken to think we won't get the definitive report probably before the end of the decade at which point it will be 10 years since and a lot of the 
damage, I think, particularly when it comes to children and young people. Basically, it'll be kind of too late for 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 them. And I think when it comes to lockdowns and the impact of lockdowns, even if you say that lockdowns were not a woke conspiracy theory and were very, very necessary, it is kind of without any doubt that school closures did a huge amount of damage to some of the most vulnerable and low-income children in society and that that damage could have been mitigated if there'd been better planning and the planning wasn't done and everyone kind of assumed that any child could be homeschooled by their nice stay-at-home parents where everyone's got their own computer and internet Mm. connection and could do all the sort of remote learning. And that is something that I think we really do need to focus on in addition to the deaths, the impact on on education and, and child development. Um, Arthur, just as a good lawyer, never asks a question that they don't know the answer to. A smart government generally doesn't start an inquiry if it's going to report when they're in the firing line. Commissioning inquiries tends to be a way of, you know, a a, a three or four year one. Let's make it as long as a parliamentary term as we possibly can. Um, Loads of the players are already out of politics. You know, uh, Matt Hancock is is far from the only one. Um, With your experience of government, what are you expecting uh, from the way this, this major inquiry will play out? Well, I, I think, I mean, to pick up on Rachel's point, it will take ages. Obviously, the the case study here is Chilcot. Now, the the thing that they produced was was an amazing bit of work. I mean, the, the, the report from the Chil- Chilcot inquiry, I think, is, is a profoundly important sort of document. But whether it's had any impact on the way British governments behave in wars, given that it was it was well over 10 years after the war that it finished, mm. um, you know, it's it's it doesn't seem to lead anywhere. And, and this point about that by the time they finished, it reminds me. So in Tristram Shandy, he worries that mm-hmm. he's he's growing older quicker than he's writing his own life story. And so he's never going to get to the end. And that's what this inquiry is, isn't it? That we will we will be having more pandemics from which we're trying to learn whilst we're still writing this inquiry. Yeah, there's that sort of truism that uh, armies tend to fight the last war. Yeah. And maybe maybe sort of medical, maybe, maybe health services fight the last pandemic as well. Well, they, I think they do. And there is this point about the, the British government had identified a flu pandemic as the big risk. However, on that point, because uh, Cameron was, you know, was pushed on it today, uh, people I talk to in this space say, yes, but if we were had really prepared really well to deal with a flu pandemic, we would have done a lot better on COVID as well, because there are not the same, but there are some overlaps. Mm. Um, as we've sort of touched on, the, uh, the the Conservative press have been bending over backwards to put it in their context. So the Telegraph has been chipping away at the very concept of lockdown and being on the fringes of vaccine scepticism as well for, for you know, months and in fact years now. They recently ran a, a, a pretty ridiculous front page saying that lockdown only saved 1,700 people. It was based on a single press release in the IEA. Today, they've got Dan Hannan rubbishing, you know, the entire anti-pandemic effort. Are we going to have to like hunker down and, and, and sort of deal with this entire topic as a, a battleground between you know, reality-based politics and fantasy libertarians. Is that just the way it's going to be now? Well, I think it's interesting because this reminds me a bit of that Nazi uh, conference in London, that you have this element on the right in Britain that are desperate, for, for reasons that known only to themselves, desperate to, to sort of recreate what's going on in America mm. and sort of bring in the full culture war, which which extends presumably to vac- vaccine denial and, uh, and this sort of weird belief that the lockdowns are woke or whatever. Um, but I think fundamentally there is not public take up for this. You know, it it remains a fringe idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was 
one of the reasons at the beginning that Boris Johnson didn't want, uh, sorry, the, a certain prime uh, minister uh, take didn't, a drink. Yeah, didn't want to lock down was because uh, there was this weird belief that the British people will not be kept from their right to go to a pub or I can't know, some bullshit like that. Yeah. And it's, you know, actually everyone said, oh yeah, I get this, yeah, I'm yeah. going to stay at home now. People were totally fine with it. Yeah. It was, it was like, I mean, I, you know, it was a horrible experience, but aspects of being able to be at home were not dreadful no. for some of us. I'm not saying I could do another lockdown right now yeah. in the lovely sunshine, but if it happened, I think I'd be mentally able to tolerate it. Yeah, and I think that the, the attempt to create a sort of conspiracy around it, which is what you're seeing. So you've got the Telegraph and the Spectator have got this thing they call the lockdown files. And if you add the word files to anything, it means there's a conspiracy. Like the X-Files. Exactly. Yeah, the Rockford files, um, all and, the files. Yeah, so no doubt there's a conspiracy to be uncovered. And and that is just a bit stupid because, yes, it was bad for some people and better for other people. And um, and then, but life tends to be like that as well. And and frankly, you know, if we had a more equal society, then of course, the way we responded to COVID would have been different. Yeah, there, there was one point that I was going to try and make. And now that you're talking about conspiracy theories, maybe I can make it in that way. Like watching the inquiry so far, this may be a niche view and others are very welcome to disagree with it. But I do think there's a big elephant in the room, which I think is due to stay there given the terms of the inquiry. And that is that there's growing evidence, which is collected by people who aren't conspiracy theorists and who aren't mad, that COVID-19 was not a natural event, but that it leaked from a lab and then was covered up by, by Chinese authorities, right? And mm. I, don't, I don't actually see how you can have a meaningful inquiry without that question of where COVID-19 actually came from. Yeah. And I actually don't necessarily want to see Cameron, who's a politician, but officials especially, spending years in effect publicly apologising, which is kind of what they've done today, for focusing on a flu pandemic rather than other types of pandemic like coronaviruses, because none of them, for diplomatic and for political reasons, are going to come out and say that maybe they were right to focus on the more likely naturally occurring event over one caused by human error, which was then exacerbated by said humans lying about it to cover their asses. And I think people who take part in this podcast and people who listen to it, certainly me included, I think maybe we'd be better off if we could get into a place where we were more angry with regard to COVID and what we all went through, more angry about dodgy experiments in Wuhan potentially than we are about Matt Hancock having an affair. I think the government is so loathed that it is making it really hard for us to see who is the bigger villain here. And, and, and anyone can disagree with that, but I, I, that's my view. It, it's a point, but the counterpoint is that like we, you know, we don't have any influence as British people over the authoritarian, totalitarian government of China. And also that whether COVID-19 was a naturally occurring uh, disease or whether it was the result of a, of a kind of science fiction lab accident, that doesn't in any way kind of excuse the lack of preparation. I agree with that. But my point mm. is about the inquiry and what the inquiry is going to do. And if the inquiry hears from people who quite rightly possibly focused on a flu pandemic and didn't focus on a coronavirus pandemic because, frankly, it was more likely that one of those would only occur in the event of an accident. But they can't be honest with the inquiry about that, or there's mm. various political, complicated reasons why they can't say that. Then that will limit the the point of the inquiry and the lessons that will be learned from it. Well, the good news, Tom, is we've got until 2030 to keep talking about this <laughs> and battering it into the ground. So let's all meet up in the year 2030. We'll be revisiting it over and over again. Can I say that I am going to see Pulp in, in, in a week's time? So am so I. That was, that was, are you going to? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll see you there. That was, a, that was a, great, a great reference. In the year 2023, it doesn't have the same ring, does it? You don't get this kind of <laughs> swerve on the newsagents. 
final barrier against Suella Bravman's hardline plans to make street protest all but impossible fell in the House of Lords. A fatal motion to block the bill was ignored by Labour, so a changes to the Public Order Act are now law. Under these new laws, police can stop a protest if they think it will cause serious public disorder, serious damage to property or significant and prolonged disruption to life in the community, which could be anything. It could be pulp at Finsbury Park. How did we get here? How can we undo it? And why won't Labour focus on the government's authoritarian moves? Tom, police in the UK now have almost carte blanche to stop pretty much any protest, including slow walking. Are we now in a world where we effectively have a police veto on protest? Um, well, that is the problem, yes. I mean, legislating against pro- but leg- legislating against protest makes life very difficult for the police um, because it, it will always be up to them to interpret it, and their reputation is not exactly glowing at the minute, but if you introduce laws that have the potential to be quite draconian, you end up in the complete mess of what happened, which is peaceful Republican protesters at the coronation being preemptively and outrageously arrested. But it just seems like these laws will require such a degree of interpretation by senior police officers in and how and when they enforce them to their maximum effect that it just sort of will let, will let politicians off the hook. It will just make them the fall guys for bad laws And while the police have done a lot to destroy their reputation uh, in the last year, two years, I am actually slower than most people to criticise them, simply because there's no surer way to the road to anarchy and basket case society than to delegitimise the police and make it it fine for people not to trust or not to respect them. It's the absolute key marker of a basket case country for the Home Secretary, if you like, or the government to kick not even upstairs but to kick downstairs onto them the hard decision making about how hard you use these laws is a really stupid and cowardly thing to do yeah because i mean any police commander on a scene is always going to err on the side of minimizing disruption minimizing chaos and restoring their idea of order which is always going to uh, you know push in the direction of clearing the streets and restoring traffic flow of course. I mean, look at the appalling scenes at the Sarah Everard vigil. Now, that essentially did for Cressida Dick, quite rightly so. And the public outrage was directed at the police, quite rightly so. But in the event that police over overreach in controlling protest, the person who makes the decisions in the heat of the moment will have to work out for themselves whether or not they are correctly articulating, correctly correctly exercising these laws that many of them don't want. And really, it should be the government and should be the Home Secretary that is the full guy for what happened to, for example, the, the Republican protesters at the coronation. One of the weird kind of uh, byways or legal uh, legal kinks of this thing is that the definition of community includes anybody who could be affected by a protest anywhere, not just people who happen to live in the area. So, I mean, presumably this means you can be arrested for protesting against fracking in Yorkshire you know, even if you're doing it in Cornwall, you know, the, the, the um, idea that you know the serious disruption can be both physical and local, but it can also be, you know, through a wider transport, or even information network. Yeah, I mean, probably. I do still think that we are a functioning democracy and I do still think that it will be possible for these laws to be interpreted reasonably by police forces. The idea that protest is going to has been sort of quietly made illegal seems quite far fetched to me. Like we have a loathed government but Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil and so on, and the tactics that they use, they would be, they would pose a problem even for far more liberal, far more well-liked, far more tolerant, far less cowardly governments. They, they, I mean, they would be. 
Mm. Rachel Bravman brought these powers in by secondary legislation, uh, which meant that it didn't get line by line scrutiny. The Lords had already voted it down once. This does seem like an extraordinary way to bring in such large and sweeping powers. It's a thing that governments try and do where they say they have the secondary legislation, which means that it doesn't get doesn't need to be voted through in Parliament. And they say it, it doesn't matter because we're intending to use it for these reasons and these are good reasons. And it's really interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed David Davis, who we all know as the former Brexit secretary. But in a past life, he was really, really big in, in campaigning for civil liberties, resigned both as a shadow minister and even as an MP in, in protest over what he thought was an affront to civil liberties. Um, but I was asking him about this and he said that he'd actually warned colleagues that they think they have the best of intentions and therefore they're only going to use these powers in positive ways for good. And he says, you've got to think about how these powers could potentially be used by a government that is completely unlike yours with people who you really disagree with. But isn't that the first thing you think of when you're introducing major powers? You're not going to be the government forever? I I don't think they do. And this probably happens in in all parties when they've been in power for a long time. It does something to people's brains and they really struggle to look at how the powers they are granting could be used in in future. And I think it's really worrying because it means that the laws don't get the scrutiny that they need. Now, with both the Public Order Bill and with the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which is kind of its precursor, it was sweeping, wide-ranging legislation designed to do a huge number of different things. And the amount of time it got for the debate in Parliament was, I think, like one, one day, like one afternoon's debate. And I can kind of agree with Tom that the purpose of the legislation, there might be an argument for it. But I think what you do when you circumvent the processes of parliament is you lose the opportunity for people to kind of sense check it Mm. and to stress test it, which is basically what the House of Lords is meant to do. The House of Lords is meant to go, here's your legislation. Okay, let me think of the most convoluted test case example I can think of. What would happen then? What would the law mean? What are its implications? We've already mentioned the Republic protests. I remember before the Public Order Bill came in, I was on a radio show with some Conservatives and I said, look, the problem with this legislation is it means that you could be arrested and have your right to protest taken away from you if you had an item that just could potentially be used for, say, locking on or gluing yourself to something or something that was totally innocent, but the police decided that it was possible that it could be used. You've got, you've got your bike lock with you because you've got your bike. Because you've got your bike, yeah. And that would then be illegal. And the conservative I was sort of talking to was like, but the police would never actually do that. Come on, you've got to trust them to be able to make common sense decisions. And then we saw exactly that happen. So the Labour Lords, when deciding not to support the fatal motion, which sounds much more exciting than it is, so that the correct way to oppose this legislation is to vote out the government of the day and replace it with a Labour one, which, of course, you can say that about anything, can't you? It was very frustrating for a lot of people to see the Labour Party not overtly oppose this. And we've already heard Keir Starmer say that unpacking all the Tory legislation from the past 13 years isn't their priority. I mean, how, Tom was saying, you know, we could reverse this. How can it be reversed then if we've got a Labour Party that lacks enthusiasm for unpicking it? 
Do you want the really cynical answer? Yeah, go on. They're not going to unpick it because they think it's popular. Yeah. And actually, it is popular, or at least it was popular prior to the coronation. Another thing that David Davis said is he thought that the arrests over the coronation would sway public opinion and so we'd get a kind of backlash against it. And we haven't, there hasn't been the polling yet to see if that's happened. But certainly the polling that was done at the end of last year, overwhelming support for criminalising certain offences, for giving the police more powers, mainly because, as Tom said, people don't really like Just Stop Oil. And the Labour Party knows that if they come out and go, this is an egregious affront on civil liberties, we're going to reverse it as soon as we get into power. A lot of the people who they want to convince to vote for them won't like that. So yeah, it's a it's a, it's a kind of cynical poll-based move. I think, I mean, <clears throat> on questions like this, I was really interested in what Tony Blair said recently, because apart from Iraq, Tony Blair is always right about absolutely everything. Um, <laughs> he, was ta- he was talking about, um, essentially about Labour politicians getting tied up in knots on trans issues. And he just said that it's not a question of what you want to do. It's a question of strategy and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and whether or not you campaign on something. And, and the example that he gave was the repeal of Section 28, which he did extremely soon after coming into power. But he didn't campaign on it hardly at all. And the reason was because he, wa- he basically wanted people who were homophobic to vote for him and then say, well, actually, there you go. Have some of that. And you don't, you don't necessarily get to stick it to people in the way that Starwell may want to on this by telling them in advance that you're going to do it. Do you do things that are socially progressive but potentially uh, not popular with, um, with like a sort of majority conservative right-wing people in the country by just not making a big deal out of it? You just do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When your political capital is at its highest, i.e. when you just won an election. Exactly. Yeah. Arthur, the Mail, unsurprisingly, have been going after Starmer for taking money uh, from Just Stop Oil donors. Uh, their key line of attack is that uh, Starmer is secretly a wild-eyed Marxist and in the pay of various mobs. Um, is he boxed in on this? As, as Tom was just saying, you know, he can't say anything before an, ele- an election. Well, I think it, it goes back more to what Rachel's saying. It is popular. And that's actually... Uh, it, the difficulty is that probably listeners to this podcast don't like this stuff very much. But we, we all remember just how authoritarian New Labour was. Yeah. And people uh, liked that. They liked it and they kept voting them in. So, you know, that's that's the challenge there. Well, some people like it. Not everybody liked it. I no, mean, and, it was... and pe- people like us, in the, the anti-growthers in North London podcast studios didn't like it. Yeah, but I mean, so ID cards were phenomenally unpopular no, right. with and, Joe Schmo. Yeah, and, and during that time, the Lib Dems, who were obviously presenting themselves slightly differently, grew to their sort of highest level of support. Um, you know, in the modern era. So it, it, it's, I'm not saying it's universally popular, but it, it definitely has a certain constituency. And ID cards are actually a really, really interesting example for this because ID cards weren't popular at the point when they were quietly dropped, but they were really, really popular, I think, four years before. Right. Um, and that was partly because the government was saying these will solve like literally all of our problems. And then as it became apparent how expensive they were going to be, and then the government went and like lost hundreds of thousands of people's worth of, of tax data, which wasn't a great look, and popularity kind of w- waned. And so m- maybe we just have to wait for the, the pendulum to, to swing back, at which point it it will be a, a no-brainer for a, a Labour government or even a Conservative government. Well, I'm glad you've raised this, Rachel, because um, tomorrow, funnily enough, there's a new edition of Jam Tomorrow coming out, which is all about the story of ID cards. Is it? From the Second World War through the 50s mm-hmm. and the 60s and how it was related to... Uh, Everything from various kind of moral panics about underage drinking 
and uh, you know, sort of uh, you know, profiteering during the war, right up to New Labour. And Roz Taylor has made a special edition of Shan Tomorrow about it, and it's available tomorrow. Can I just point out that I absolutely didn't know that, and if I had, that segue would have been really stilted and awkward, but actually came across quite organic. Yeah, it did, didn't it? <laughs> That'll be in your feeds uh, tomorrow, Wednesday the 21st of June. What a coincidence. Finally this week, we'll take two battered sausages, a battered burger, three steak pies, fish and chips twice, and a complete overhaul of the school system. Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson is planning to add VAT to private school fees, which she said will raise £1.7 billion to improve state schools. But in emails seen by The Independent, the body overseeing private schools called her chippy and claimed she didn't know diddly about the system. Uh, Rachel, the word the use of the word chippy, chip on shoulder, um, particularly you know, against somebody who may well be education secretary pretty soon. It seems unwise. Is it misogynistic? Is it class snobbery? Or is it misogynistic and class snobbery? Uh, obviously, it's both. Uh, and obviously, um, Bridget Phillipson is quite young. And I think that's kind of part of it as as well. But I think it is the case of people who are so used to talking to each other, to parents, to teachers, to other people in that world, that they just have a very dismissive view of, of anyone else and perhaps don't see how arguing that the most important thing at the moment is to make sure that people who can afford £30,000 a year in, in school fees are protected from the, the horrors of having to pay VAT is, is not a particularly good look. Yeah, private and not intended for public consumption or not. It's sort of pretty ugly sentiment, isn't it? It's a, the, the idea of the chip on the shoulder. You know, it pops up every now and again and it packs so much class snobbery into it. So what I think is interesting about that is it's a very class-based insult or retort, but it's actually kind of similar to a much more common retort that women get all the time for basically anything, which is you complain against about something and it's because you're just too emotional and you can get upset about something that mm. is, you know, abysmally low rape conviction rates to the horrific story last week of the woman who's been uh, jailed for illegally ending a pregnancy to the amount of unpaid labour that women do when it comes to childcare and housework to the gender pay gap. And I'm just listing all of these in a very, very calm voice and knowing that if I talk about any of them on Twitter, uh, I, I will get called kind of uh, over-emotional. It's this way of taking somebody's very legitimate points and using the fact that they are in a position to make those points because they have that experience mm. against them and un to undermine that that experience, which is sort of quite distasteful. What infuriates me about the chip on shoulder thing is that it's usually deployed against people who've got completely legitimate complaints, usually about hierarchy and usually about class. And the rejoinder that, that, that if you complain about being told you've got a chip on your shoulder, this apparently conf confirms that you have a chip on your shoulder. It's impossible to get back against. Just as uh, when women are um, attacked for being emotional or bossy is the other one, isn't it? Yeah. And you make any rejoinder to that and it has simply conf confirmed, oh, that you're being very emotional, oh, you're being very bossy over this. It basically means there isn't ever a way to discuss a, a legitimate grievance or complaint mm. without the tone in which you do it being used to to undermine that, which is very convenient if you want to keep the power structures in place. Yeah. 
Tom, uh, Bridget Phillipson retorted or responded, if it's chippy to want young people across the country to have the best start in life rather than hand tax breaks to private schools, then I suppose I must be, which I thought was quite a classy rejoinder. Yeah, I mean, it is such a revealing comment, isn't it, that, that, that to use the phrase, to, she's a bit chippy. I mean, every time someone like me thinks that the, way, the world is improving in terms of sort of social attitudes, then people like this just come along and show their true colours, don't they? Mm. And in a way, you almost love to see it. Privately, Labour will be very, very happy about these comments. I mean, it feels like there are Starmerite fifth columns everywhere at the moment, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean. These comments just make their job so much easier. I mean, it's like the House of Lords, isn't it? But loads of Labour politicians in, in the past have sort of promised and not quite abolished the House of Lords. The, the, the honours list of he who should not be named, it could not possibly make it more easy for Starmer mm. to just go ahead and get rid of it. At some point in two years' time, he'll just say, well, look at this 28-year-old who's done nothing. This thing's got to go. And if you're trying to do something which is adding VAT to private school fees, which is going to actually piss quite a lot of people off, not many, but some, and if the people in charge want to give Labour the ammunition, like, like the, the, the sort of the social capital or whatever you want to call it, to say this lot can just suck it up, then they've, mm. then they've exactly done it. And what I don't really get, I, it's one of those phrases where I've spent sort of 25 years forgetting what it actually means and where it actually comes from. But it's just to do with like people in bars actually in the olden days, or if you want to call them, putting a chip on their shoulder and daring someone to knock it off to, to, yeah. to, start, to start a fight with them, right? Well, Bridget Phillipson is not doing that. She's going up to independent schools and saying, I am going to punch you in the face and there is nothing you can do about it and then punching them in the face. She's not daring anyone to hit her. In terms of what the phrase, where the phrase actually comes from, she, it, it's just not relevant. Yeah, well, I, I looked it up, and according to Grammarist, it stems from the practice of boys in the 19th century United States placing an actual chip of wood, not a chip from the chip shop, a chip of wood on their shoulders and daring someone to knock it off, which would then initiate a fight. The origins are quite misty. This may be one of those kind of sort of urban myths that's generated itself. But you're right. She's not doing that at all. She's not looking for a row. No, and, and I, I don't I don't understand why this phrase, um, if that is its origin, I don't understand why it's always used in the context of being uppity. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like like someone someone resenting people for having more than them, which is yeah. not what people who sort of dare people to hit them do they tend to just go ahead and hit them which is exactly what Bridget Phillipson should do and, and hopefully will do now Arthur this is a delicate topic but I think you're a bit better educated than me you've been you've been to slightly nicer schools not that I, not that I went to scumbag college you sound a bit chippy there Andrew. I do sound <laughs> out, yes. I'm born in a chippy um what's what does the phrase chip on shoulder mean to you what are its residences for you uh, well, I will. I, I have heard it often in the circles of people whose parents <laughs> paid for their education. You'll be shocked to learn. And, and I suppose in a way that comes to the heart of this issue that uh, is it a huge surprise that the organisation that exists to uh, promote and protect private schools turns out to be rather snobbish? I know. It's amazing, isn't it? It's rather like, you know, if someone starts the sentence with, I'm not racist, but you, that there's absolute 100% confirmation that they're a racist. So yes. I think, I, you know, so-and-so is chippy is the way that you learn that the person you're talking to is a massive snob. Mm. 
I'm going to go home and play Chips on My Shoulder by Soft Cell tonight. So. I was going to say that I'm going to go home and play Chip on My Shoulder from the Legally Blonde, the musical soundtrack. There you go. Which, very... which, by the way, this, this, this is not my escape routes and we'll come on to escape routes uh, to, to, towards the end of the show. But whenever I am feeling really, really, really down, I do play the Legally Blonde, the musical soundtrack and it always cheers me up. And that particular song, which I'm getting from the blank looks from everyone else, no one else has heard, no. um, is, is absolutely excellent at lifting your mood. We did once uh, call a podcast about he who cannot be named illegally blonde. So, you know. <laughs> We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for Escape Roots. What are the methods we're using to get the thought of politics out of our head? What TV, film, books, stuff like that? Rachel, what's your escape reason? Well, last time I got stung because I went lowbrow and everyone else went highbrow. So today I have a book, which I don't even think is published yet. Uh, I've got a review copy, which is called In Light Years, There's No Hurry, Cosmic Perspectives on Everyday Life. And I am going to horrifically mispronounce the name of the author. I'm sorry because she's she's Dutch. Myelin von Himstra. Uh, it is amazing. She has written about the overview effect, which is this... Um, a phenomenon where astronauts going into outer space, they look at the Earth from space and they get this sense of perspective and awe and kind of connectedness to everything uh, on Earth and it can last a lifetime. And in a world where, I don't know about you, but people are often, I'm often feeling kind of very pessimistic and kind of disjointed and um, disconnected from everything. What she tries to do is experience the overview effect on Earth without going into space by doing things like finding somewhere she can go really look at the stars and to recreate that feeling and that sense of wonder from Earth. And it's really calming. That sounds great. That sounds right up my streets, actually. But it does remind me of, do you remember the total perspective vortex? In, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes, where they show you the entire universe. And, and, it's, and it's a form of torture. Yeah, and there's a little arrow saying, you are here. And yeah. people, it drives people insane because <laughs> it shows them just how meaningless they are. But I think, uh, I, I think it's not about feeling meaningless. It's about realising, because the Earth is, in, in the terms of the galaxy, so small, Everything that we think divides us is totally meaningless because we are all sharing this one planet and in the, the, the grand scheme of the universe, that makes us incredibly close and connected to one another. Who put 50p in the hippie? It sounds lovely. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> it sounds lovely. It's really good. <laughs> it's really, it, it sounds fantastic. In light years, there's no hurry. There we go. Tom, what's yours? Yeah, I'm very late to the disco, but I've been binging um, what, something which I should have got around to watching a long time ago, but Coogan and Bryden's The Trip to Spain and now ah. to Greece. And if you, I, I know that everyone's seen it, but my God, I hadn't seen it before. And it's so funny. And I mean, I was I had a, like a boring, don't worry about me or anything, but a boring hospital appointment this morning. And I was just sitting there waiting and noticed this woman was looking at me a bit strange because I hadn't really realised I was just sort of sitting there singing Demise Roussos to myself. You know, the, you know, you know, we're, you know, forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, hopefully this bug will leave me at some point soon. But mainly, like a tragic middle-aged suburban man, I've mainly been sitting in my garden shed bar watching the ashes, and I'll be doing a hell of a lot more of that. Fair enough. Are you wearing a kangaroo toy? Uh, obviously not. Good. Arthur, what about you? You wearing a kangaroo tie? Well, Tom is literally just going, you know, obviously it's the ashes. <laughs> and I'm not even a proper cricket fan, but I definitely find the ashes interesting. And I'm getting flashbacks to 97 because the, the first test at Edgbaston in 97, England looked very strong. 
Okay. And, and then we didn't, you know. So let's see if that happens this time. Because I mean, we're not. I, I'm just, I think as we have as we talk, the the outcome is being decided. But England looked pretty strong this season. But you never know. I'm going to say that wasn't my main memory of 1997, but it was yours. That's Grace. <laughs> um, my uh, my escape route is uh, we've been getting back into homicide, life on the streets, the fantastic uh, American crime drama from the early 90s. It was the precursor to The Wire. Homicide was based on David Simon, uh, the creator of The Wire. His book, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets. You have rolling cases, you have case of the week, but what you're really there for is the fantastic ensemble playing from these this huge spread of strange, diverse, mad, obsessive detectives. And it's 55 DVDs, so I think this is going to keep me going till the end of the COVID inquiry. <laughs> But um, fifty-five, fifty-five DVDs, dozens of. Who seasons. has who has the space for that? They're very thin DVDs. <laughs> Where do you store them? Just shove them in a corner of somewhere. They're not they're not in gigantic DVD cases. It's very ergonomic, and it brings me to mention the fact it's put out by Network Distribution, who have just gone bust. And Network Distribution were an absolute jewel in British culture because they put out all the TV that nobody else wanted to put out. So ancient shows from the nineteen sixties. Uh, comedies, documentaries. If, if you were a TV geek, the network were preserving basically British culture for you and they've just gone bust and it's immensely sad and I hope somebody picks them up and keeps putting this stuff out because, you know, in a world of streaming, there seems to be less enthusiasm for the kind of hidden gem of television and network really were the kind of uh, the standard bearers for that and I hope somebody brings them back to life somehow. And that is the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Tom Peck. Thanks very much. Thank you, Rachel Cunliffe. Thank you. And thank you, Arthur Snell. Thanks, Andrew. Um, before we go, a quick word for our friend and panellist, John Elledge, whose partner, Agnes, passed away over the weekend. Agnes was also very close to Marie from the podcast, and it is a terrible shock for everybody. They're all in our thoughts. We send them our love, and we know that listeners will do so as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.